0: Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now, here is the host of our show, USURF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion.
1: Welcome to USURF Spotlight. Today we're going to discuss findings from a recent USURF delegation visit to Nigeria. Nigeria is, is Africa's most populous country with more than 220 million people. It presents a unique and diverse religious landscape with an almost even split of Muslims and Christians and other small groups identifying with African indigenous religions, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and humanism. USURPS reported on religious freedom conditions in Nigeria for 20 years and since 2009 USURF has recommended that the State Department designate Nigeria a country of particular concern, or CPC as it's known, for engaging in and tolerating systematic, ongoing, and egregious religious freedom violations. In recent years, these violations have included imprisoning individuals on charges of blasphemy in the North, as well as pockets of ethno-religious violence and broader attacks on worshippers. Last month, USURF Commissioner Fred Davy led a USURF delegation to Nigeria for a week of meetings with stakeholders in Nigeria's capital Abuja. We're lucky to have the chance to sit down with him today and hear his insights from that visit. Welcome, Commissioner Davy, and thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Dwight. It's good to be here. As always, why don't we uh, start off with just getting a sense from you uh, about your general reflections from the trip. What were some of the main takeaways that you uh, took? Sure, thank you again.
2: Um, Well, the first takeaway I would say is that the risk of mass atrocities is real and present and felt by everyone. Uh, Both Christians and Muslims we spoke to reported feeling afraid that they would be eradicated from Nigeria. And unfortunately, these fears um, may be self-reinforcing as communities feel increasingly fearful of being targeted on the basis of their religion. So become more likely to self-harm and mobilize and act rashly in the face of violence. Collective fear is one of the most powerful drivers of atrocity crimes. These fears of course are aggregated by low level religious bias and opportunistic discrimination experienced by both Muslims in the South and by Christians in the North as well as by demographic and economic shocks to the country these days. In addition, Dwight, many stakeholders we spoke to felt elites in the country were making the situation worse by playing on religious identity and fear for personal gain. This dynamic adds an additional layer to the risk of atrocities and identity-based violence. So that was one takeaway. A second is, that as mainstream Christian and Muslim communities in Nigeria negotiate their relationships with one another, religious minorities and individuals with dissenting beliefs or interpretation are being forgotten and excluded from the religious freedom dialogue. For example, when we ask stakeholders about the state of religious freedom in the country, most assume we wanted to hear about the state of Muslim-Christian relations. Very few stakeholders raise the issue of, of uh, treatment of Shia Muslims, or the treatment of humanists, atheists, and individuals practicing indigenous religions. This is definitely a gap in the religious freedom conversation in Nigeria, and one which I hope USURF can help to fill. And then a final takeaway is, and, and one that gives me hope, is that it, there appears to be widespread popular support and demand to engage in national dialogue on issues related to religious tolerance, interfaith harmony, and freedom of religion or belief. Nigerians don't seem to be satisfied with the state of religious tolerance and discourse in the country at present. Stakeholders of all faiths express disgust and shame regarding the mob killing of Christian University student Deborah Emmanuel in Kano State in May. Also, with the May killing of um, Harira Jubril and her four children uh, in Christian-majority southeast, a, a killing that was done by violent actors, as well as um, those who deplored and condemned the violence against the against the Catholic Church in Odono State on Pentecost Sunday, where scores of of worshippers were slaughtered uh, in the course of their worship. Nigerians of all faiths want to be part of the solution, it seems, and it was this observation that left me feeling hopeful.
1: Well, you you certainly painted an extremely complex and concerning picture, Uh, although it is, it's always nice to have hope. Um, One of the themes I hear is the impact that broader insecurity and violence is having on freedom of religion or belief. For Nigerians of all faiths. Um, from your brief, brief time on the ground, uh, what emerges some of the root causes of this violence and insecurity? I remember a time not too long ago where you didn't see the blasphemy laws being enforced, but now you see those being enforced. So what do you see as some of the uh, root causes that have emerged here? Sure. And that's a, that's a great question. It's a
2: critical question. And for us here at USERF, you know, we are particularly interested in where does religion rank you know, among the drivers of violence? And from our conversations with stakeholders on the ground on this recent visit, I came away with the assessment that the core drivers of violence in Nigeria are predominantly about access to power and to the benefits of governance. The government has often failed to provide its citizens adequate and equitable access to security services and justice. And we heard that from across the board, from any number of people and the leaders there in the country. The population is growing and the country's institutions and infrastructure cannot provide for this growing population. The availability of land is is shrinking. The price of food is rising. Children are out of school. Youth are un- and underemployed. Um, And all of this contributes to violence. Natural resource um, wealth only makes its way to the pockets of a few. Human capital is bleeding from the country as people with the ability to leave, leave. And the region's resilience to economic and ecological shocks seems to be eroding. People seem to be scared and vulnerable. Federal and local government is failing to provide relief. We heard this over and over again. And so many communities are battling against themselves to secure their access to basic necessities and security. And then there are the violence entrepreneurs, the bandits, the local uh, young people with their automatic weapons that are taking advantage of this really dire situation. Now, you'll notice that I've left religion out of this list of core drivers of violence. Having spoken with a diverse cross-section of stakeholders, as I mentioned, on the ground during our visit, I think that religion is playing a role in the violence, obviously, but it's not the core driver. Instead, religion intersects with other aspects of identity like ethnicity and indigeneity, and and that aggravates then the instability caused by the broader absence of governance and justice. In other words, The absence of a strong both federal government or national government response to the issues of the country and then the absence of a strong state government response to the issues of the country allows religion to intersect with these other conflicts uh, to create the violence and the instability we're seeing in the country. Um, Religion and other aspects of identity are proving to be very effective mobilizers of violence and other forms of political and social influence. And so elites and the violence entrepreneurs, or the bandits, are pitting religious groups against one another for their own gain. And in this way, religion plays a role in the violence, even while it is not a core driver of that violence.
1: Yeah, that's a very important distinction that you've made there. Of course, religion doesn't have to be a core driver uh, for that violence to have an impact on freedom of religion or belief, as we both know, but naturally a nuanced understanding of the complexities of the context is requisite in responding to any uh, such situation. Uh, I want to turn now to what you found during your visit about the role that the Nigerian government is or is not playing. Do you think? If from your time on the ground that the Nigerian government is doing enough to address the drivers of violence and threats to religious freedom?
2: Um, as I said, I, I think the, the government is not, but I also want to say that it's kind of interesting the government's also not happy with the situation we, as we experience and in our conversations. And Let me just say a little more about that. The government routinely denounces religious violence. It has also been known to correct low-level religious bias and discrimination you know, through its slow-moving bureaucratic channels. It is throwing everything it's got, it seems, into military campaigns against militant Islamic actors in the Northeast. So the government is, seems to be doing what it can. What it's not doing is working to strengthen itself so it can do more. The government has not passed meaningful police reform needed to improve performance and meet the security and justice needs of the country. It has not addressed issues of graft and corruption that are siphoning funds from the public budget that could be put to better use. It does not effectively communicate with its people about perceptions of inequity and exclusion. Instead, it's seeking to avoid these conversations, at least as we observe in our com- and as we understood from our conversations with people there in the country. So in short, the Nigerian government tolerates its own weakness. This is not uncommon in countries with a history of coups and military rule, but it is in this way that we see Nigerian government tolerating religious freedom violations and other human rights violations in the country albeit indirectly. Under the International Religious Freedom Act, which lays out criteria by which the U.S. government designates CPCs, this designation should be given to countries that either engage in or tolerate particularly severe religious freedom violations like deadly attacks on houses of worship. Furthermore, government officials are only one set of influential actors in Nigeria. Nigeria has an extremely competitive marketplace for influence. While under international human rights law, it is the government that bears responsibility for protecting freedom of religion or belief and other human rights within their territory. In the Nigerian case, I do believe that non-governmental actors like business and media elites, traditional and religious leaders, and political opposition figures also can and should be taking more responsibility uh, to promote nonviolent discourse and reduce religious and other identity-based polarization of politics in the country.
1: As you well know, uh, one of the most surprising US policy changes uh, relevant to Nigeria last year was that the State Department removed Nigeria's CPC designation. Uh, The State Department had placed Nigeria on its special watch list in 2019 and had designated it as a CPC the following year in 2020 for engaging and intolerating tolerating systematic, ongoing, and egregious violations. So removing the CPC designation marked a notable policy change, one that, uh, uh, you know, USERF, uh, spoke out very strongly about. So during your visit, I understand you spoke with uh, U.S. government officials in Nigeria as well as local stakeholders. Uh, While you were on the ground, did you get any sense of why they made this policy uh, decision, given everything we've discussed about the situation uh, so far and what you uh, saw with your own eyes? Uh, Sure. Um, I think the first thing I took away from the
2: trip with regard to this, and that I want to highlight, um, is that the U.S. government officials um, that we spoke to, that we know, are very concerned about the situation in Nigeria. They see the violence and atrocity risk that is there, and it concerns them greatly. So the question then becomes, given this concern, why did the State Department not renew the CPC designation? And I came from, away from this trip with a few thoughts on, on, on this and in this regard. Uh, first, as I discussed before, I think the Nigerian government's intolerance of all of this is indirect. It essentially tolerates its own weakness and in doing so, it fails to strengthen its own ability to protect the rights of its people. And so while we at U.S.E.R.F. interpret this type of indirect tolerance as worthy of a CPC designation, it seems our State Department counterparts may disagree on that aspect of the designation. From our perspective and that of our legislation, we assess religious freedom protection in terms of how it affects individuals since the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights protect individuals and not governments even indirect toleration has serious effects on religious freedom for people for the people these international laws protect so that's one um, observation that I uh, uh, have in regard to why the State Department perhaps uh, disagreed with us on uh, the CPC designation. We also saw many stakeholders we spoke with failing, uh, falling into some common traps and misconceptions regarding the CPC designation. The first was that people wanted to compare Nigeria to other countries around the world and to say that because Nigeria is not as bad as, say, Iran or North Korea when it comes to religious tolerance, it does not belong in the same tier as those countries. Of course, at USERF, we do not compare countries to one another, but instead we compare each country to the criteria stated in the International Religious Freedom Act and make a determination if the countries meet the congressionally mandated standards for a CPC or a country of particular concern. If we at USERF determine they do, we recommend the designation, regardless of how they rank compared to other countries for which we also recommend that designation. Stakeholders in Nigeria often demonstrate an implicit assumption that promoting religious freedom in Nigeria is about promoting the rights of mainstream Muslim and Christian communities, often forgetting that freedom of religion or belief is first and foremost a right, right exercised by individuals. Individuals expressing minority beliefs and religious interpretations have been completely overlooked in the broadest scheme of priorities in Nigeria. While we understand this tendency in a co- complex context, from a religious freedom perspective, these are exactly the people we should be protecting and speaking out for the most in such contexts. And then finally, and this is more of a speculative reflection on my part, I think that because religion is only one aspect of identity in Nigeria, and because identity is an aggravator, but not a core driver of such violence in the country, I think officials from many governments and non-governmental organizations are wary of making the situation worse, essentially of adding fuel to the fire. If local elites and violent entrepreneurs or the bandits are using religion to mobilize violence, policymakers fear by highlighting religion, we may make the situation worse for religious communities across the country. We, do not hear, we did not hear comments to this effect directly from our U.S. government counterparts, but many other perspectives we engage with from peace-building uh, and human rights professionals made me wonder if this could be a factor. One thing I want to clarify regarding USERF's CPC designation, however. Um, in my mind, the CPC designation is necessary but it is not efficient to catalog the broad spectrum of grave human rights abuses taking place in Nigeria. In addition to violations based on religion, Nigerians continue to be denied their rights to life, liberty, and fundamental freedoms on account of their ethnicity, indigeneity, or geographic heritage. And the complex ways in which these aspects of identity intersect with popular perceptions of injustice and access to power and economic opportunity. I want to make this clear because while in Nigeria we heard some interpretations of our reporting and policy positions that implied people thought we were downplaying our religious aspects of violence, we were not. Our interest rests with the welfare of the Nigerian people writ large because it is only in a context where all human rights are respected that freedom of religion and belief can truly flourish.
1: Yeah, and thank you for uh, laying all this out. I think it's an important distinction you made there uh, regarding uh, the larger human rights abuses. And uh, all we're saying is you've already said in different ways You know just because there's larger issues and core drivers when religious freedom is impacted in egregious way whether it's toleration or perpetration we have to call it out and that's what we've done here Uh, and for years I can remember years ago when I was in Nigeria you know and seeing some of the same you know complex and numerous uh, issues that were at play and so they still continue to play out but now we have you know, groups like Boko Haram and ISIS and other factors that are, that are pressing on, on uh, identity on the basis of religion. So thank you for that. I, I wanna turn to our final question uh, uh, today regarding our policy recommendations, but I wanna ask you uh, something very specific that I've been thinking about as we make recommendations. Obviously, the United States spends a lot of money on Nigeria and in Nigeria for different reasons. Um, And just last year, Secretary of State Blinken announced $2.1 billion in additional assistance. And yet the situation situation there is still very bleak on a range of issues and not just religious freedom. Do you think that more U.S. assistance would help? And do you think that the U.S. uh, government should reconsider its financial support to Nigeria given all these uh, complexities and challenges? Well, Dwight, uh, based on the conversations
2: we've had our own research, Um, I'm not sure it's about more spending uh, so much as it is about smarter spending. The vast majority of the U.S. civilian spending in Nigeria goes toward humanitarian assistance and and public health objectives, and these are noble and expensive objectives, but their contribution to broader violence reduction and atrocity prevention is limited. So from that perspective, yes, I think it would be useful to increase the US budget line or at least relative US spending on efforts to strengthen democracy, human rights, and governance efforts in the country since poor governance is the main driver of violence. This doesn't necessarily need to be a huge sum and it doesn't, uh, and it doesn't all need to be programs. It could be applying more strategic and consistent pressure on the government to combat corruption and enact police and judicial reform. But when something is in the budget, that means it will be given higher priority. Having said that, it would be a mistake to increase U.S. spending in Nigeria without increasing the U.S.'s capacity to manage that assistance. You have to get the right, you have to get the timing right it seems to me You can't prioritize a bunch of new democracy, rights, and governance programmatic spending without having the people there who can strategize and manage these programs and make sure the funding achieves its objectives. But you also can't deploy a cohort of new program managers to the embassy and then not give them any budget with which to operate. So it's just not about the amount we're spending but it's also about how we're spending it. We met with several peacebuilding organizations in Nigeria, some of which receive U.S. funding. I will say these meetings also gave me cautious hope for the future. It seems that a lot of ground has been laid for peace-building and conflict mitigation programs that will succeed in Nigeria. And it's important to see that these peacebuilding and conflict mitigation programs do succeed. These, though, have thus far been small scale and limited to a few governance areas. In order to pilot ideas and and develop proof of concepts, we have these small programs going now. But it seems like it might be time to invest significantly in scaling these efforts up, and this is something uh, we believe uh, we should consider Uh, Further, as we continue to engage uh, Nigeria.
1: Well, thank you so much. We'll have to leave it right here, but uh, I want to thank Commissioner Fred Davey for sharing his insights from uh, that important visit last month to Nigeria. You can find USERF's reporting and full set of recommendations for U.S. policy uh, on our website. As always, thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight.
0: learn more about USURF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USURF Spotlight.